countries in South America to the smallest enclaves of Central America and the Caribbean and is available on SoundCloud, iTunes Podcast, and Google Play Music. The Latino Media Collective is recorded in WPFW Studios and airs Fridays at 1 p.m. on WPFW Washington. Peace, y'all. This is Rod Stars. This is G1. Together, we rebel Diaz. And when we are here in D.C., the DMV, we bump WPFW. Washington. Every Tuesday, 9 to 10 a.m., Voices with Vision. You heard? We've been trying to move this struggle from a lower to a higher level. Voices with Vision, bringing you news and analysis. It's about cutting-edge social justice issues by mixing various voices and ideas with information, cultural expressions, and commentary. Voices with Vision airs every Tuesday on your jazz and justice station, WPFW. Tuesday, January 30th, 2024, time for this week's edition of Voices with Vision. I'm Netford Freeman in the virtual studio with Brother Craig. We're your co-host for that show that's not for the politically faint of heart. Ain't that right? What's going on, Brother Craig? Yes, that's right. If you're looking for an experience that will put political sensibility over the truth, this isn't the show for you. This morning, Neffa and I will chop it up about three African countries quitting the ECOWAS regional bloc and what that means. And we also have audio from Panka's session last week, the D.C. crime bill and the war in Chocolate City. To start off, Mumia Abu-Jamal remembers a fellow freedom fighter, Seku Odinga, soldier for black freedom transitions. For all our political prisoners and freedom fighters behind prison walls, what's the call? Free Free them all. Odinga, soldier for black freedom transitions. His name was Sekou Odinga, a lifelong soldier for black liberation. When there arose a black freedom movement, he never hesitated to join in and add his life's energy to the struggle. In the 2020 book, Black Power Afterlives, Sekou and his partner, Dekwi Kioni Siddiqui wrote a moving self-history that gives us insights into these lives and freedom struggles. Sekou Odinga wrote, I was a member of the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, a Black Liberation Army soldier, and for 33 years, a U.S.-held political prisoner of war. Most of my adult life has been spent in the struggle for black self-determination, black revolutionary politics, and black liberation. As such, my life speaks to the oft-heard expression, 
oppression breeds resistance, and resistance breeds repression. My political consciousness began when I was a youthful offender at Comstock Correctional Facility in upstate New York with a good friend and close comrade, Lumumba Shakur. Lumumba's father, Haji Salahuddin Shakur, would send his son reading material on Malcolm X, his teachings, nationalist politics, the struggle for land and independence, and most pointedly, the human rights black people must exercise to arm and defend themselves against violence, state or personal. Lumumba would share these materials with me. And after serving a three-year sentence, I was back on the street and seeking the Malcolm that had inspired me in prison. The words of Sekou Odinga from the book Black Power Afterlives, published by Haymarket. Odinga would join the Organization of Afro-American Unity, or the OAAU, led by Malcolm. But shortly thereafter, Malcolm would be assassinated. Odinga would leave the OAAU. In 1968, a delegation from Oakland, California, called the Black Panther Party, would be sent to New York to seek recruits. Odinga and Lumumba Shakur joined immediately. The rest was history. In November 2014, Odinga made parole and he and Decree fought for black freedom for a decade. Sekou Odinga, 79, returns to the ancestors with love, not fear. This is Mumia Abu Jamal. These commentaries are recorded by Prison Radio. Now that Biden has become the fourth consecutive American president to bomb Yemen, the poorest country in the Middle East, this time is punishment for its solidarity with the Palestinian people. I just have to ask, who is your favorite American president to have bombed Yemen? Mine used to be Obama because he's hip and cool, which makes it okay. But I also low-key really love George Bush because he had that really cute Bob Ross happy trees painter arc towards the end of his life. Oh, George Bush is still alive. Okay. It's kind of weird. But nowadays, I think it's Biden because if I don't support Biden, that means I support Trump. And if Trump got back into office again, God knows what he would do. I mean, what if he bombed Yemen? He, he bombed Yemen. They all bombed, they all bombed the poorest country. I'm like, oh my, time heals all, but you out of time now. Judge gotta watch us from the clock tower. Little tear gas cleared the whole place out. I'll be back with the hazmat for the next round. We was trying to protest and the fires broke out. Look out for the secret agents, they be planted in the crowd. Set a civil unrest, but you sleep so sound. Like you don't hear the screams when we catching beat down. Staying quiet when the killing's again, but you speak loud when we ride. Got opinion. Burkina Faso, the Republic of Mali, and the Republic of Niger have announced plans to leave the economic community of West African states, ECOWAS. All three of the countries being led by militaries um, said that after 49 years of existence, quote, the valiant people of Burkina, Mali, and Niger had noted with great regret, bitterness, and great disappointment that the organization known as ECOWAS had moved away from the ideals of its founding fathers and Pan-Africanism. And so you're listening to Netfa Freeman in the virtual studio with Brother Craig. We don't have a guest for this one. It's just gonna be the two of us chopping it up and talking about this and the implications for it. This is huge. I don't know if people heard the news or understand the implications of it. I think it's huge. 
What's up, brother Craig? What's your first your first opening thoughts on this? Yeah, in fact, uh, this was news. I think you were the first person to tell me about it. But um, I know it's the kind of thing that is kind of striking terror in the hearts of these Western imperialists, especially those in France, the United Kingdom, the United States. Because when you talk about Mali, you talk about Burkina Faso, and in particular Niger, you're talking about uh, countries that are rich in resources, particularly um, elements like uh, uranium that the West needs for uh, its economy and for its military machine. And they basically consider Africa and its resources as belonging to them, you know. And this is the kind of control that they don't want to lose. And ECOWAS seems to really be a vehicle, kind of like a Trojan horse for Western imperialism. And with these countries withdrawing, there's uh, all kinds of possibilities that could emerge that would result in the United States, France, uh, the United Kingdom being shut out and not having that kind of access that they want. So it's definitely a very interesting development and, you know, something that signals, you know, interesting things to come. Mm-hmm. And just so, you know, a little background, ECOWAS, this, uh, the Economic Community of West African States, was formed. It didn't have this comprador intention <laughs> or, you know, this Western and neocolonial uh, agent disposition and its formation, which was in 50 years ago, 1975. It's made up of about 15 West African states. It's a regional block of countries that's supposed to facilitate economic uh, cooperation for the betterment of the people, this population, and also defend against threats. And this day and age, we're talking about the extremists, violent extremism going on and, and under a lot of times under the guise of Islam, but whatever, you know. And also these are the things that the imperialist powers claim that they're trying to fight and assist Africa in. But ECOWAS over the years, because it's comprised, this body is comprised of representatives and the leaders of the various countries. And because it's comprised of that and because neocolonialism has been able to uh, put in place or maneuver in such a way that supports compradors being in power, then invariably ECOWAS has started to serve the the role of a company, like a, a conglomerate of, of compadors. So, you know, when Niger and Burkina Faso and Mali are all uh, were, and those people, and not, and not the only people, a lot of these, a lot of countries in Africa, the people are rising up against the ravages of neocolonialism and, and neoliberal capitalism imposed on them by the international financial institutions imposed on them by the West and people don't like it, you know. And you get these leaders who want to stay in power and, and, and claim their democracies but do all kind of uh, maneuvering and, uh, and manipulations of the Constitution. And then the West applauds them for being models of democracy. So these three countries within the last, over the last three years, without going too much into detail, uh, the leadership of them, the, the military leadership of them, took over from the compradors and they're and all of them saying because of these leaders are failing the people right now ECOWAS in response to these things and this is why you know the these countries are saying that the that ECOWAS has failed and is now actually serving well that's the claim they're serving they're no longer serving the people and they're actually serving the interest of imperialism in the west um, but they reject that they, ECOWAS rejects the claim, but this is what they're saying. But it's because if you come and you see these popular takeovers, they're popular. The people in the streets, they're celebrating these takeovers. And you want to come and say, no, that's, you know, this is undemocratic, unconstitutional takeover. You threaten them with military invasion to restore the democracy. You you uh, impose sanctions on them, which you, that means you're actually you really are doing the bidding of the West there because they don't really have any real power to exercise sanctions outside of. I mean, I guess they can put sanctions in terms of the type of uh, rights that they would have under the regional block, but also the it's the West and those institutions that can actually level sanctions. This is how the West acts. I mean, you know, they can reject and say they're not serving uh, the Western interest and not acting like the West, but this is exactly like the West. 
you know, they invite the militaries in and, and then they, and they, they beg for money from the IMF and the World Bank. You know, this is exactly what neocolonialism is. So when they impose sanctions and those things, then obviously first when they when these countries had the, the coups and then the ECOWAS leadership denounced the coups, the first act was to was to suspend them from ECOWAS. You're suspended from ECOWAS. Now that these leaderships have, have formed an alliance, they didn't see Pan-Africanism coming from ECOWAS, so they formed their own alliance between the states and their own cooperations and their own doing. And then they they want to succeed or, or come out of ECOWAS. Then ECOWAS's response is, well, you know, it takes a year to do it. And we these countries are still within the ECOWAS community. So it's almost like you're basically, and this is their official statement. It's almost like you're saying, well, we, we don't, you're not allowed <laughs> to leave us. It's like the mafia. <laughs> yeah, they want to keep the door open for the, you know, continued interference, you know, by claiming that you're still members and you still have to abide by whatever the dictates are of those people that control ECOWAS. Mm-hmm. But, you know, uh, it's it's interesting. I mean, I, I know you said earlier how the uh, formation of ECOWAS in the beginning was of some good intention, and <laughs> I'm not even sure uh, about that in the sense that there's always been this struggle going on, political, ideological struggle inside of Africa from the beginning of the anti-colonial movement and the success of Ghana getting its independence, there's always been this contradiction between, you know, the revolutionaries, the Pan-Africanists, the people that want to have unity, and then these uh, compradors or these neocolonial puppets who want to maintain their relationships with uh, imperialism, with the colonial masters, and continue uh, in a capitalist model of, uh, of exploitation. And we see how Kwame Nkrumah was a champion of uh, Pan-Africanism and African unity, and then how immediately, especially as uh, as Ghana united with Guinea and Mali to form a union, immediately tried to create new formations, sort of counter-revolutionary formations to balance out or to uh, negate the revolutionary political forces, and you know we saw that with what they what they called the uh, Casablanca group versus the Monrovia group. These were groupings of African countries coming out of colonialism and struggling over this issue of unity. Of course, the Casablanca group pushing for a revolutionary type of approach, an instant unity we're going to unite our governments and have a united policy and then the monrovia group saying okay well now that everyone is excited about unity and everybody's excited about independence strategically let's give a you know slow down approach you know let's take it easy let's be gradual let's you know don't don't move so fast you know that this is sort of the political uh, perspective and i think you know ultimately what we have coming into the 70s was the inability of the of, of Africa to become united and uh, failing the people. And in that sense, the people were, uh, you know, still suffering under neocolonialism, basically. And then you have this formation of ECOWAS, which is saying, OK, well, we'll have a regional formation of these 15 African countries in, in, in the West, and uh, it will make promises uh, you know, for the benefit of the people, but at the same time, will never really, you know, be effective in bringing it about. It's just, you know, it just always seems like a, a smokescreen or, like I say, a Trojan horse for continued uh, imperialists. Mm-hmm. But in language, you know, they know what to say. You know, right. they know the right words to say. Yeah, I, I don't, I understand what you're saying in terms of, a, I guess maybe my choice of words in terms of its intention was the people involved, the leadership involved. The attempt was to establish 
some some economic integration across the region. So, of course, like you laid out, the history was that it wasn't had not been successful on the initial uh, like OAS and all of that, or at least that was only that was hampered by the contention that you described. But in ECOWAS's establishment and those countries, it's a little bit more obviously complicated in terms of the history. And it did include countries and leadership that we know were genuine in terms of Pan-Africanism, like Seiko Ture and, and Guinea. You know, so in terms of that, there, you know, of course, there might have been some people with some other intentions and whatnot, but it was at least that's what I meant. It was just, it was at least an attempt to further some economic, uh, some regional um, economic cooperation and whatnot. And it's just, I mean, obviously, none none of them, those who were revolutionary, didn't anticipate the firmly entrenched neocolonialism now, and and how the and of course they had the whether they anticipated or not the West's efforts to undermine it. You know they couldn't. You 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 got to march on <laughs> anyway. But right now I think it's very interesting what we're seeing, and it's going to be you know people are going to say well I mean they're going to they wanted the West and the enemies of Africa and the compradors of Africa will paint this narrative of what's going on with these three countries that they're uh, exemplifying or demonstrating embodying a negative thing for Africa. And that, you know, there these other countries which are not popular, to, you know, these leadership in these other countries, we talk about Nigeria in Nigeria. particular, you know, this leading. And I don't think I, I think Nigeria's chairman chairing of the ECOWAS has changed. I just think it's transitioned since the last over the this year, I think I, I might be wrong about that. But these are the countries that are, be, you know, they're unpopular. You know, what's happening in Senegal with the, and, and even Ghana right now and Ghana. And this is also important to this and tied in what's happening in West Africa, Ghana, Ivory, the United States. Let's start with the United States. United States has planning to establish new drone bases in Ghana, Ivory Coast and Benin. Of course, they spent a whole hundreds of millions of dollars on a drone base in Niger and didn't expect this uh, coup that, that uh, this takeover and that this anti-imperialist disposition is, is developing in these states. So they, they got to regroup and they got to establish something else. Now, one thing that's important for us to understand, all of us, is that real solutions, solutions that really solve this issue of terrorism and violence and whatnot are not in the interest of those who make money off of militarism and war. That's not in their best interest. While they have to come and say, well, we're bringing this because we want to stop this circumstance, they actually have no vested interest in it, as well as real self-determination and resource sovereignty of these countries, which we see Niger also just recently um, announced a a freeze on the uh, mining permits in Niger, which would include uranium, and this is their biggest one. And so that resource sovereignty is not in the, their best interest either. So those things that are really in their best interest and the country's best interest and the interest of the people are antithetical to the interest of those who claim that they want democracy, quote unquote, that they want to stop terrorism, quote unquote. Um, they thrive on, they have to actually uh, have war, destabilization um, and you right, because that, that gives them their, their pretext, their pretext mm-hmm. to become involved, their pretext to offer their services for security and their weapons and all of that so they can they can uh, maintain their presence and their control. You know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because they're, they're in a pretty desperate state. I think uh, the circumstances, particularly across Africa, you know, we look at Sudan and the, the war there and the war against the, the rapid defense forces in Sudan versus the army and they're just fighting over the people. They they took over that they took away that coalition government that was going to form a few years ago. All across Africa, things are seem pretty dire. Libya, you know, all the and that um the really the bright spot is the spot where they're claiming is, you know, role, which is this alliance, the Alliance of Sahel States, Niger, Burkina Faso, and Mali. What's interesting is that the imperialism, as it moves on to try to exercise hegemony and sustain its grip, is doing things that are sort of counterintuitive, right? Because they claim to be fighting terrorism, that's been their claim, and they've clearly been unsuccessful with it. 
Now, now, mind you, the terrorism and whatnot has increased since these takeovers, but that's not it, – it's kind of interesting that no one knows where they're getting their weapons, all that. And they, they it was increasing anyway, so it's not like you know they were stopping it at all. The, there's a guy, Nick Terse, who writes a lot for The Intercept and others, and he focuses on AFRICOM and whatnot. But he has you know documented proof of the rise of violent extremism. Uh, but I said that to say also that these countries now – uh, these alliance have been looking at Russia, and I know everybody want to say, well, Russia ain't working in the interest of Africa and all that. Well, you know, the main thing is the imperialists are not, and they're the ones who have had the history of colonization and neocolonialism, and that as far as these other countries are saying, they have a proven – they have actually been able to be proven to thwart the violent extremism. They just had the conference of the non-aligned movement um, happen in Uganda this weekend. And they established some stuff. And so basically we're looking at the multipolar world and within Africa, even the, the comparator countries are trying to establish some multipolar, multipolarity in terms of – but uh, but in particular, these countries, Burkina Faso, Mali, and Niger are really you know, showing that they're trying to chart a path to self-determination. And people might say, well, they're military – uh, leadership and they can't. That's not democracy. This is true, but they have to. You know, the countries are doing what they can, particularly Burkina Faso, Faso to transition to something that's really people-centered, not some Western constitutions and you know parliaments and whatnot that don't work. Um, but they will have things that you have because they have people voting on things in Burkina Faso and establishing people-centered projects for sharing what little they do have and whatnot. So they're trying to figure it out. And, and just because they had a coup, because I mean, coups in and of themselves don't don't uh, mean something negative. It's what happens afterwards and why. If you find that you're that you have been left with no recourse, that you know leaders are changing constitutions and using the army to repress the people and all that, then you know at least they found some some military people with some integrity that rejected the orders of the of the compradors. That's what we saw in Burkina Faso. You know, with uh, Thomas Sankara and, right. the, and his political organization and the military, they were able to take Burkina Faso, make it self-sufficient in food, expand the participation and the rights of women and other people that previously, you know, had been uh, marginalized and then stand up to the International Monetary Fund and say, to the neo-colonial powers, you know, we're not going to pay this debt, this debt that keeps us enslaved. So that was a military coup. And we look at, we look too uh, at uh, Muammar Gaddafi, who came to power in a military coup. That's when you right. have the military coup that is then followed by uh, the, you know, the masses uh, being organized to participate in government, and an agenda of social uplift and improvement um, and economic self-sufficiency um, taking place, then we can say, you know, that uh, there's been a, a change in power. It came through a coup, but uh, it's it's having a positive result. And we have to say, too, that, that the conditions for these coups, when we talk about Mali, we talk about Burkina Faso, uh, Niger, you know, really come from this legacy of colonialism, mm -hmm. where Africa itself is impoverished, the resources are being taken, the country is being kept poor, uh, governments are are being, you know, bribed or coerced into allowing the International Monetary Fund or the World Bank to create economic conditions of unemployment and rising prices. Uh, and, and, and rising cost of living, uh, you know, in those areas, this creates dissatisfaction. From this dissatisfaction comes political repression because governments want to stay in power, want to stay in control, which then creates more uh, of a crisis and then leads to a coup sometimes where mm -hmm. military take over and say, hey, the people are not happy, you're not fulfilling you know, you're not satisfying the needs of the people in the country, et cetera. So this is what we have. And then, you know, we have the whole neocolonial machinations that go on also, where you have 
revolutionary and progressive types of governments being overthrown through neocolonial mm. machinations, creating coups. So, you know, the West uh, and their Trojan horses uh, are quick to point at coups and quick to say it's undemocratic on the one hand, but on the other hand, they also create the conditions for coups everywhere and then foment and organize and orchestrate coups to their own benefit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so right. it's that, that kind of hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. And that's the gangsters organized crime thing. And you know, it's interesting, something you said also pointed out the parallels when we think about the interests of the rulers and how uh, these interests also manifest themselves here locally within as the colonized people within the United States. It's against their interest for, you know, just as it's against their interest for people to actually control their resources and whatnot, it, it denies them access to it and the ability to profit off it. And all they can do is create punitive measures and impose themselves on, uh, on the people. They do the same thing here locally. You know, so there's all kind of conditions of impoverishment and whatnot and unemployment and all those in our communities here that leads to the dissatisfaction that Brother Craig just described. And the response from the rulers is not to find ways to distribute and mitigate these circumstances and eventually give people the the basic human needs that they want but it's and you know dc crime bills and and more police and all that it's the same thing you know but on a on a, on a more localized level but also within the bowels of the the, the uh, imperialist countries here at least africa we can find and we need to be linking up with africa and that's the the mandate of imperialism is that that's where you know, people can exercise control over land and also erect, you know, uh, structures and procedures and and processes that are in the interest that, that are expressions of self-determination. So within here, we got to got to figure out ways to do the same thing. And as, as we do it, expect them to malign it as something other than it is. I think there's always that connection going on. You know, whatever's whatever's going on here is going on there and whatever's going on there is going on here in its own kind of parallel form, you know. That's right. And just like the military industrial complex makes money off of the destabilization, these things, the national security industry, industrial complex here, the surveillance, the cameras, people make money off of that. The weapons that the police have and the shields and the vests and all that, you make money. It's an industry. So that's nice. It's not just to protect their interests. It is that, but it's also people make money off of it. So what really is in our interest is antithetical to the interests of those who are in power. So and that's whether you talk about here in Southeast D.C. or Chicago or Mississippi, Jackson, Mississippi, or if you're talking about, you know, in Abuja, Nigeria, or, you know, somewhere in Burkina Faso or something, you know, these interests are, are that this is what it is. So and especially those who think that they want to claim being American, <laughs> you need to remember that, too. <laughs> now these these countries have made this stand, these three countries here have made this stand saying, you know, we want the French out, we want the neocolonialists out, we want to remove ourselves from ECOWAS, this Trojan horse for Western imperialism that is uh, um, levying sanctions against our people and uh, that is threatening invasion and, uh, you know, that is doing the work for the neocolonialists. The question is, you know, what's the future for these countries? They're sticking together, but what are the prospects, you know, for greater African unity? Because we know the European and U.S. imperialist system, they need to control governments. They need to control resources. They got to control markets at all costs. They use their bribes, their threats, their sanctions, their assassinations. They foment coups. They invade. They do whatever they got to do to get what they want, which is control and servitude uh, Mm -hmm. from these populations. So, you know, I feel like this is a window, a window of opportunity, not really knowing the nature of these governments uh, and these military leaders, um, whether they're revolutionary or not, whether they truly Pan-Africanist or not, I, I don't have enough information to say, but I will say that 
these moves it that they're like making that. have it's created a it's yeah. created a space. It's created a window. It's created a, an opportunity for right. some real progress to happen. You know. And but they're invoking the names of our martyrs. So that's another thing. The narrative. What you mentioned, all those things that the imperialists have to control. We all they also got to control the history and how it's. And so when these leaders come up, Tarare and them in Burkina Faso, and they invoke Thomas Sankara. They're already going against the grain when they see because they're actually setting expectations for themselves that people have. So what we're doing, and this is, I think, this is exactly what you're saying right now, is and what we're doing with this program, is that we're trying to set the narrative. We trying, we're not going to let them determine what has happened in this area of the world and what's happened in our our communities here. We have to also have control over the historical record, and hopefully this discussion was beneficial to that all right we're gonna move to the next thing you're listening to voices with vision on wpfw 89.3 fm washington not for the politically faint of heart to Voices with Vision, the show that's not for the politically faint of heart on your jazz and justice station. WPFW, building a better world, one broadcast at a time. When this bill is law, we will have 100,000 police officers on the street, a 20% increase. It will be used to build prisons to keep 100,000 violent criminals off the street. We will have the means by which we can say punishment will be more certain. The whippings of mass distraction have always been in the play. People follow their sports teams more than they follow the things that's going to affect them every day. So a lot of times the bills are passed and politicians go back and forth and all of a sudden you turn around and there's a crime bill that not only affects your present, but really seriously affects your future. Clinton passed a crime bill, which allowed now 14-year-olds to be tried as adults, more prisons being built. The impact of the crime bill is devastating and felt almost immediately. For example, the three strikes law. This idea that if you have three offenses, that you're out of here, right? Like you, you go away, you're, it increases your sentencing uh, dramatically. That is embedded into the crime bill. Violent crimes should be told. When you commit a third violent crime, you will be put away and put away for good. Audio from Parker's session last week, the DC crime bill and the war in Chocolate City. A mega crime bill that was proposed on January 11th by Brooke Pinto, so she's a council member in DC. Um, and it's important to know that you know this approach to being tough on crime, law and order, this is nothing new. This has been the response to uh, dealing with systemic issues of poverty and homelessness and joblessness and gentrification, things that we'll talk about tonight. And this bill includes many provisions uh, that were been, have been in previous proposals. So D.C. has been attempting uh, to pass another crime bill for a long time. Really, all of 2023, there's been proposals for uh, new crime bills.
And just to tie in, you know, Pakistan's thoughts on the bill, you know, we contend that this bill is imposing all those things we just mentioned, more state surveillance, uh, more police authority to target, harass, and brutalize black people, and again, expanding the occupation in DC's black neighborhoods. If you remember, uh, Comrade Josh just talked about the idea of black people being a domestic colony within the United States, an internal colony, and that colonial relationship being enforced by massive police presence that makes sure not only we are controlled, but we're exploited for our labor resources and, and many in and, and many other ways. So we'll continue to talk about that concept as well and how that relates to this expansion of policing. So what I want to say is that um, it is very common as a part of our heritage to gather in groups in the community, um, not always for something, you know, that's bad, but just to socialize. We're sociable people. And so, uh, you know, by this bill being passed, like the, um, the guys, the gentleman said, that it creates a sense of fear in the communities and it doesn't make you feel safe. It makes you fear the police when they're supposed to be caring for us and just observing to make sure that there isn't any crimes taking place. Um, and so I can just speak on what this young lady just uh, talked about. Um, I have five sons. And whenever my sons were together, hanging out together, they always assumed they were up to no good. Um, and they were just hanging out with one another because they're brothers, you know? And if they had a couple of their friends with them, they were always uh, targets for the police. They were always harassed. So, uh, this bill is definitely, you know, not beneficial in our community. If you have something to say online, we'll take hands there and then we'll go in the room. Um, any illusion has a hand up, go ahead. Uh, hey everyone, I'm calling in from Virginia. And the first thing that jumps out to me is the arbitrariness of it. And I think that ties into the last slide as well, but especially how much um, pro-Palestinian organizing is going on and how um, and Zionists try to feign these organizers as being intimidating to um, Jewish more generally, the idea that DC is currently considering a bill that would make mask wearing, um, that would criminalize mask wearing and give police the arbitrary um, ability to name anyone wearing a mask as potentially being um, suspicious really ties into your the inability to be able to organize effectively if the police can deem anything as, as as simple as a mask is as something that is probable cause for for searching or just harassment. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, and I see we have two more hands. So we'll have Jackie on stack first, then and then we'll go to the room. So Jackie, you're next. Yeah, so I, I find it interesting that um, there is an anti-mask provision in this bill at a time when obviously <laughs> COVID is um, expanding again <laughs> um, because people didn't want to wear masks the first time. So now you have the fact that we are living in a, an ongoing health emergency um, where people should be wearing masks to protect themselves, especially people like me who I am uh, immunocompromised. Um, so I can't be around a bunch of people without a mask on. So does that mean that me and elderly people and other disabled people who are out with masks on, are we now going to be subjected to police uh, suspicion and terrorism because we're wearing a mask? Because they now have this cover of articulable suspicion, whatever the heck that is, um, is, is, is that because because that's where I see this going. I mean, I went into my pharmacy the other day and they actually had a sign, have a sign up that says no masks inside the pharmacy. And I'm just like, I'm not taking my mask off for y'all because ain't none of y'all going to come and take care of me when I get sick. So and they're just like, oh, no, not you, Miss Jackie. But but mm. why, why personalize it? Why? Why not actually address the problem instead of trying to find new ways to criminalize people um, just really because you you don't the city does not want to address any of the root causes of this crime 
that they're so concerned about. They're not concerned about crime because if they really were, they would deal with housing, education, jobs, wages, healthcare, all that kind of stuff. Instead, they're gonna terrorize people who are wearing masks because now the police are saying, well, I think they're wearing a mask to commit a crime. On the basis of what? That's, 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 that's immediately what I see from this. A lot more police harassment under these really dubious um, kind of excuses, g- giving the police more power uh, under the cover of law to just harass people because, just because. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you for sharing, uh, Comrade Jackie. Um, we have Hid next, and then we'll turn to the room for hands. Hi, um, I'll definitely say, like, piggybacking off what Jacqueline's saying, like, not only is it, especially in the middle of a pandemic, we're, we've seen through data that COVID has, like, overwhelmingly affected Black neighborhoods the most, especially with how woefully inefficient public the public health um, sector has been, especially for Black people. So, when you know that they're not only going to actively be pushing this law, they're going to specifically hone it in on particularly black people who've already been treated worse, not only just from the medical space as a lot of us probably can relate to, but also when it comes to like the cases where when we do eventually get sick, when you force people to have to remove their mask, most likely gonna get sick, they're not gonna have the structure to be able to recover from it. Then it's gonna further sprinkle on into the neighborhood as more and more people get sick. On drugs when they didn't have to have a, you know, they always supposedly have to have a reason to stop and search you. But once they found whatever they wanted to, after searching you, violating your rights for real, then that was their, then it justified their their reasoning in court to the judge. And so it's not just about people not selling drugs, you know what I mean? It's about also, you know, being innocent until proven guilty. You know, and so them being able to violate anyone, even a person who might be selling drugs, is a threat to all of us. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great point. Obviously, when we uh, look at this crime bill, it's, uh, you know, it has a very singular focus, right? We talked about it's very focused on working class, basically working class black communities, right? Um, There's a singular focus in the articulation of what crime is. Right, they're only focused on crime being, you know, if I take your phone or if I steal your car, you know. Um, But we know that crime is much larger than that. In fact, most crime is committed at the top. But the, you know, we never hear any kind of art when they're talking about crime or any kind of tough on crime. You don't never hear about any, you know, uh, any kind of ruling class exploitation. You know what I mean? Which happens all the time, you know? Um, So if they're not talking about the actual systems that affect people's day-to-day lives, if they're not talking about, you know, the things that affect people's day-to-day lives, then we know that their definition of of crime is biased and it's meant to target us, right? And to, you know, repress us, oppress us. To build on that for real, uh, there was 14, 14 developers that got sued, right, um, by the attorney general. And I know because one of them was my, uh, owns the development where I live. Um, the developers and worked with the um, the um, building management, basically, the, uh, I can't remember what the, the term, but the people who manage the property, property managers, they work with the property management company to fix the rates and raise the rates artificially. And, the, and they worked with this third party that is a website and has a software that does data analytics. So they can say, look, you know, uh, these are the rates that, um, these are the rates that, that you need to charge people, et cetera, et cetera. So they're raising rates artificially throwing people, I mean, ruining people's lives when you do that. You know, my rent went up $1,200 a year, you know, $100 a month. That's a lot, especially when that $100, that extra $100 I had went to food because it went up, right? And then, but what does the attorney general do? This is how you know it's it's class war. So when they're talking about crime, that's what they're talking about. Class war, national oppression. They're talking about oppressing a particular people, right? 
And but the the developers who are robbing people out of millions and millions of dollars in rent, they get sued. So they don't talk about throwing them in jail for life. They don't talk about rounding them up and containing that and making it a deterrence to lock them up to make sure they don't do that again. When this is the reason that a lot of our people are in the street committing these crimes, you know, not to mention this very anti, uh, you know, the antisocial behavior comes from the anti-human culture, you know, the very selfish American culture um, that many of us internalize. Uh, and so, yeah, the, the system is not, um, it's not the laws, like you were saying, the legalism is only meant to control and detain and oppress us and not, um, in any way stop our, the misery and, the, and, and alter the actual conditions that create them. To me, this represents also, this is our domestic colonization analysis that, and, and the difference between so-called representative democracy and participatory democracy. Capitalism can't really handle real participatory democracy. So they make this representative thing, which a lot of us call democratic fascism. Gives you the facade of thinking that you can, you have some vote, you can vote for somebody, but it's gotta be Democrat or Republican. And then you entrust them to do things on your behalf. Participatory democracy, we will be voting on the policies ourselves, devising them ourselves and everything. When they what they just showed here was also the police knowing the job. And it goes to this domestic colonization thing. They want the ability, they don't want hampered the ability to run down the colonized subjects, the subjects of colonial, the colonial subjects. They gotta run and keep us, you know, keep us control. Any policy that impedes that, then they're gonna fight against it. And they know, and she's a slick. One thing about representative democracy under capitalism. It attracts the most opportunist elements. So somebody like her can come, Pinto and all these others, come and talk a good game and everything, make people think, and then they get in power and they're really just serving the ruling class, the capitalist, the white supremacist, capitalist patriarchy, and can do things that make us think that there's no other way but to rely and depend on representatives of the democracy. When I mean, there's also, a, there's a whole, and we have to understand there's a completely other paradigm that is possible, that's what we're fighting for. Scrap this capitalist bullshit, this democratic fascism, and erect and show the people that they can be the architects of our, our liberation and our society. I heard um, the group say that they hadn't had any experience with this. I have plenty of experience with it. And uh, I think we have we need to come to an understanding, especially in the black community, that we control that we have to control the images within our communities. Wherever there is negative, wherever there's negative leadership, take 10 steps ahead of that, and you'll see that somewhere the government or the culture or whatever eliminated the positive leadership. When positive leadership is there, negative leadership steps into the shadows. So we have to begin to focus on how it is that we establish leadership within our communities, because kids want to join something. They join my block, my gang, my football team. When it's positive, they're on the basketball team, the football team, the baseball team. When it's negative, they're on the block hustling, they putting the gang signs up, et cetera, et cetera. So those of us who are interested in changing that particular dynamic, we have to literally grab our community by the throat and put every image out there that is positive so that the kids will say, I want to be that. I want to be a part of that. I can't name one kid that I know that I have a representative who did not want to be in something and therefore he chose Crip, he chose Blood, he chose Latin King, he chose MS-13 because they were the only leadership in town. So if we're going to change it, we have to begin to inundate our community with positive images. We can do that, we can win. Thank you. Thank you. Really appreciate that. I think that, I think that was an excellent way to, to, to really close out um, this exercise. That brings us to a conclusion. And we want to thank Tabena Aniquit for production assistance this week. Thank you for listening. Remember to tune in to Voice with Vision every Tuesday from 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And follow and like Voice with Vision on Facebook. If you're so inclined, you can follow me, Nefa, on 
X, used to be Twitter, Net for Free, that's N-E-T-F-A, free. Don't forget, you can listen and subscribe to Voices with Vision as a podcast on iTunes or Player FM. Just search for Voices with Vision, WPFW, keep it here. For Crossroads with Roach Brown and Ankichi Taifa, make an effort to stay politically educated, organized, and committed to the fight for the liberation of your people, or fall back. back. It go F-A-L-L-B-A-C-K Fall back if you ain't trying to ride for your people Fall back if you ain't trying to die for your people F-A-L-L-B-A-C-K Fall back if you ain't trying to ride for your freedom Fall back if you ain't trying to die for your freedom We are L-I-B-R-B-G We live F-R-E or D-I-E We lace music with codes and something to bring us closer Kick truth, the young black youth like we supposed to Go swine in our rovers and Louis Vuitton hosters We in the trench for young 50 cents and street soldiers The ones they ain't lock up and send the foreign waters To fight for something they ain't got in their own borders It's us, the free unit, they ain't holding us back We score the soundtrack to this movement Y'all just rap, brat, black on black and clap about that Stay trooper shot with Sebelis boy in the back Miss Rogers boy in the back While we ain't firing back, the boys is gone and they ain't coming back Gotta go back, say go for right and exact. It's the red, green, and the black, black, black. It go F A L L B A C K. Fall back if you ain't trying to rob for your people. Fall back if you ain't trying to die for your people. F A L L B A C K. Fall back if you ain't trying to rob for your freedom. Fall back if you ain't trying to die for your freedom. Peace. Brother Jamil here informing you about the D.C. Black History Celebration Committee's annual Black History Month kickoff on Saturday, February 3rd from 11 a.m. until 2 p.m. at Westminster, D.C.'s Jazz Church. The keynote speaker is none other than Professor Tom Porter on the role of black artists in the movement for justice and peace. For details... Call Chuck Hicks at 202-421-8608. That's 202-421-8608. Or email History at yahoo.com. The event is free and open to the public. Westminster Church is located at 400 I Street Southwest in D.C. Again, the date is Saturday, February 3rd, from 11 a.m. until 2 p.m. WPFW, building a better world, one broadcast at a time. Gil Scott Heron said, The revolution will not be televised, and yet we've seen oppression, suffering, and resistance streamed in real time across this country and around the world, from Palestine to D.C. In times like these, it's imperative to have a station like WPFW that centers justice, reflects hope, and fosters solidarity throughout our music and public affairs programming. From February 4th through the 24th, we offer you the opportunity to partner with us in this critical work of liberation by donating during our Winter Pledge Drive and ensuring that WPFW will be here to chronicle the revolution. WPFW, Revolutionary Radio for Revolutionary Times. WPFW presents Jazz at 100 2024, a sonic centennial tribute to those artists turning 100 years old in 2024 and one that will surely become an annual broadcast. On February 2nd, from 5 a.m. until midnight, we'll celebrate the music of Max Roach, Marshall Allen, J.J. Johnson, Sarah Vaughn, Blossom Deary, Armando Peraza, Lucky Thompson, Louis Belson, Dinah Washington, Bud Powell, Paul Desmond, D.C.'s own Charlie Rouse, adopted D.C. native son and my father, Sonny Stitt, and many others. That's Jazz at 100 2024. February 2nd, 5 a.m. until midnight, right here on WPFW, your station for jazz and justice, building a better world, one broadcast at a time. 
the best in live music entertainment is coming to Bethesda Theater. Peebo Bryson, the legendary voice of love for two big shows on Friday, January 26th at 8.30 p.m. and Saturday, January 27th at 8 p.m. Celebrate legend Bob Marley at the annual One Love Birthday Bash featuring popular reggae band I and I Rhythm on Saturday, February 3rd at 8 p.m. Celebrate more love at the Quiet Storm Valentine Celebration featuring live performances of classic love songs on Saturday, February 10th at 8 p.m. Peebo Bryson on January 26th and 27th. Bob Marley, 